Hi Cult Hackers, I'm Stephen Mather, one of the hosts of the Cult Hackers podcast. No Celine today, but don't worry, she's back next week. So today is a discussion I had back in the early part of November with Dr. Daryl Ray, founder of Recovering from Religion, which is a worldwide non-profit organisation that supports people through that sense-making process after leaving an all-encompassing belief system that we've talked about so much on this podcast. He's also the author of the book, The God Virus, released in 2009, and a well-known atheist, appearing on The Atheist Experience many times with Matt Dillahunty. Daryl is a wonderful and generous guest, and is such an interesting person to talk to. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Dr. Daryl Ray, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Stephen. Looking forward to this. This will be fun. Really excited to have you on. It's um, it's so great. We've got so much to talk about. As you mentioned in our very short pre-chat, uh, we've got about three hours worth here. So, uh, but we won't. <laughs> we won't take all of that. We'll. Uh, we won't uh, make that happen. But um, yeah, it's great to talk to you. You've been doing this good work for, uh, well, you tell me how many years now. Well, it depends on which good work you're talking about, but if you're talking about recovering from religion, uh, that's yeah. been going for 13 years. We started back in 2009, and uh, we're, we've grown monstrously. We're 300 volunteers and about a 17 or 18 time zones, and we, as as you know, we're we're from P- Moscow to Perth, Australia, wow. literally. Uh, yeah, that and is. we do have a volunteer in Moscow, which is kind of great. Wow. Uh, scary, but she's great. We love her. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a great place to start, really. So um, we um, uh, we have a common friend in Cherie D'Souza, um, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago, um, and she's your representative in Australia, as far as I understand it. And uh, right. so she's doing the work with recovering from religion. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why that's so important and why you started it? Yeah, so well, actually, Sherry's a board member. She'd been a board member for a little over a year. Um, uh, we have board members, you know, that help us uh, run the organization. I'm the president of the board. Uh, Gail Jordan is our executive director. But I started it back in 2009 uh, when I saw a need. I, I published my book, The God Virus, which was a bestseller at the time, sold m- much better than I ever expected it to. And then that um, that brought to me many people saying, I need help. I'm a psychologist, but I can't treat, you know, a, bi- a million people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I was try- I was searching for a way to to give give people support as they go through their journey um out of any religion, uh, any any I don't care if it's Muslim, Buddhist, Baptist, Mormon, it doesn't matter to me. I'm everybody seems to suffer when they leave, suffer in many ways, uh, not least of which is social isolation and and so people need community. They they seek community, and sometimes they seek community in bad places, and because there's no other place to go, they go back to church, yeah. so to speak, or they find another church that treats them even worse. Mm. So I started um, a small group right here in uh, the city I live in, Kansas City area, and uh, it eleven people showed up, and I only knew I only knew one person in the of the people that showed up, and about three hours later the. I just asked two questions. I said, you know, how did religion hurt you and how have you benefited from leaving? And three hours, for three hours, we sat there in that room and people were crying. People were dumping their souls out and sharing story, horror stories. And we had everything from Baptists to Moonies and Catholics, um, Jehovah's Witnesses. We had a, we had a wide spectrum. Uh, <laughs> we actually had two gay men in their 70s at, at that meeting. And I don't remember if it was that meeting or the next meeting. But anyway, two gay men in their 70s who are both church musicians. And they showed up at that meeting at this on the same day and they didn't know each other. <laughs> wow. I mean, they were living within blocks practically of each other or <laughs> miles at least. And uh, to once they realized who they were, who each other was and, you know, we're both gay men. We're in our seventies. Both church musicians. The stories that came out of the abuse of their church. Uh, of course, they hadn't come out as gay, or they wouldn't have been a musician. They'd have been kicked out. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of thing I I saw in that meeting. 
after a few of those, I mean, after that meeting was over, uh, in fact, we got kicked out because the restaurant manager was, you know, closing the place down. Uh, I thought to myself, this, this is powerful. This is, people need this. The amount of emotions, just emotional dumping that came out was a very big, big surprise to me. I was raised fairly fundamentalist, but nothing like you, uh, nothing like Joe's Witnesses, uh, nothing like Mormons, but it was still, you know, reasonably fundamentalist, but I never believed it. <laughs> I was never a quote, true Christian. <laughs> uh, and I've been accused of having never been a true Christian, and I own that completely. Yep, I never was. It, it made no <laughs> sense to me. Uh, however, I did want to help people, and I and I went on to I actually went on to seminary. I, I was going to be a minister, I, but I wanted to be a liberal minister, a minister that actually helped people, not preached hell, hell, fire, and brimstone to them. So that was the start of recovering from religion, and it, you know, it grew slowly the first three or four years, as as does anything. You know, you don't know if it's going to take off. You don't know if there's a real need. You don't know if you're going to find people to help you. It was it was just one of those things. I didn't plan on doing this. I mean, it wasn't my career path. <laughs> it wasn't something I planned. Uh, but I'm retired. Well, I was close to retirement. And and uh, the, my book, The God Virus, basically killed my business. I was an organizational psychologist. And uh, I've been working for 35 years as in this profession and thriving and doing very well. Uh, but when that book came out, I pretty much lost uh, most of my clients. Wow. Overnight. Overnight. It was... It, Within six months, I was down to two clients. Clients I'd had for 20 years dumped me because I had come out as an atheist. Now, a lot of them knew I was not religious, mm. but they they didn't know I was a, quote, atheist, you know, how, how terrible that is. And so I kind of was forced to move into a different career, even though I hadn't planned on it. I, I went, I went, you know, I talked about my books and published another book after that called Sex and God. How religion distorts sexuality and uh, and recovering from religion just seemed to continue to grow. There was more need. I would be speaking and people would come up. I need help. I need a psychologist. I need support. And uh, so we we started doing regular small group meetings in a wide range. We we had one and we opened a meeting in San Diego. We opened a meeting in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I, I had two meetings right here in in Kansas City. I had meetings in uh, Dallas for quite a while. I had meetings in New York City. Uh, you know, it was pretty much North American based for for a long time, and then we started getting uh, inquiries from outside, like other places. And then we started the uh, uh, after about four or five years, we started the chat line and the phone line so that people could call us. Wow, that opened a floodgate. Suddenly, we're not just getting inquiries from the United States; we're getting them from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> we we're getting them from India. It's phone calls are coming in from South Africa. It was it was really quite um an experience. I never never thought it would get. I mean, I wasn't planning on it being the rest of. But it takes a good deal of my time every single day. Even though I'm not running the organization, I'm very involved in it. And I I love it. I, I wouldn't do it mm -hmm. if I didn't like it. But. Anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, Stephen. Um, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by that. Um, I think it seems to me like the need is greater than ever as well. It's um, certainly from my perspective, um, being involved in a fairly low level way with um, with local organisations in the UK. Um, it it seems like you know there is a, such a need to help people with um, with with the issues that they they have after leaving religion. I was going to mm -hmm. ask you. Um, obviously, I've got my own experience, but in in your um, experience working with different people, what what are the most common problems that people have when they leave any religion? But I think particularly high control, high demand groups um, that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, well, I've got. I can before we move on. Let me say one more thing. It just occurred to me. Sure. Uh, I know you're in you're in the United Kingdom. We are actively looking for a leader in the Nottingham area. We we have a very act had a very active group there for a while, and uh, we need some other leaders. So if anybody's interested in volunteering, mm -hmm. they can hit the volunteer button on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. We mm -hmm. train everybody, and we train you very well. You don't touch one of our clients until you've been trained, and uh, you get you you get a lot of peer support in 
whenever you volunteer for us. But let me answer your question. There's there's uh, three three things that we hear the most. Um, fear of afterlife. That can be Armageddon. That can be hell. You know, whatever that. Every religion's got its own thing. You know, mm. so that's a big one uh, that we see. Um, and I would say probably tied with that one in importance, but really high on the list is um, sexuality. Some issues around uh, my, my sexuality, whether it's from masturbating and being you know, told you're going to hell you know, for masturbating or having sex before marriage or um, wanting a different kind of sex within your marriage or, have, you know, there's all sorts of things that people being gay and uh, having to act like you're straight, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then the, the, um, the third thing, and I can't say which is more important because these are just always seem to be present. A lot of people have all three of these. The third one sure. is relationships. And that is in the social isolation that comes from leaving a religion, your whole family may disown you, of course, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, or even if you're not, if you're just ta- Catholic, you may realize every time you go to a family event, you have to sit around and say prayers or do rituals that you don't believe in. Mm. And there's no there's no consideration for other points of view there. And, and you're the one that's always uh, the, the black sheep mm. <laughs> of the family, the evil, evil sheep of the family. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Sounds yeah. Cool. Uh yeah. I was the black sheep in my family. I mean, I mm-hmm. I I I I own that. Uh, sometimes it's better to just own it and move on. <laughs> but and I you know, you probably are in your family having left left the um Yeah, I, I mean, obviously you got you got more to say that we'll come back to that, but just to pick up on that point. Um I think one of the things that I find really frustrating and um upsetting is that it's always down to me or us who leave to make all the allowances, you know, so you find yourself having to, you know, do as much as you can bend over backwards um, and do all sorts of contortions to try and not to offend or upset others. And yet, you know, there's very little going in the other direction, which is frustrating. really. It it is. Now I did mention those three things. And I think if you put those three things together, they make up 80, 85, 90% of mm. all the concerns that people come to us. I mean, you could put a lot of different things under any one of these three umbrellas and, and family relations. You know, I raised my kids religious. Now I'm not religious anymore. What do I do? My spouse is still religious. I'm not, um, you know, it, it's, it's mundane things. You know, do I, I don't want to take my kids to church anymore because I don't want to indoctrinate them. And yet my spouse does want to take them to church. And I don't want to get divorced. And, you know, my spouse says, if we don't go to church, we're going to get divorced. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot of that happens and who's there to help them. I mean, there's nobody, you can't go ask the preacher for help. <laughs> no, no. And, and here's the, here's a bad part of it, Stephen, you can't go to a psychotherapist for help sometimes either. Now I'm not saying all psychotherapists are bad. Obviously I'm one, so I don't, I don't believe that. But there's a lot of therapists out there who just simply do not understand the trauma that people leaving a cult or a religion. And I, it's not just high control groups. The Catholics can be pretty damn controlling and they're not considered a high control group. And yet I see trauma coming out of people, especially sexual trauma. Come, I mean, look, look at the Catholic pedophile priest scandal. Yeah. I mean, the victims of that scandal are experiencing PTSD, if anyone is. Um, so there's there's lots of stuff going on with people, there, and there's no support for it. And therapists aren't trained in this area. So that, uh, to answer a question you haven't asked, <laughs> that led me in uh, 2012 to start uh, uh, another program called uh, Secular Therapy Project, where we we register and we vet and register therapists uh, who are secular, who, who will not send you back to church, who don't have supernatural beliefs themselves, um, who don't believe, you know, uh, who understand what cults and, and and religions do to people's psychological makeup. So um, that started in 2012. 
as I, I corralled about 24, 25 therapists to be in my database, which is teeny tiny. And now we're about to hit 700. We're, right. we're, we're within a, we're like 695 or something like that. I checked yesterday. So these are therapists all over the world. We have five or six, seven, seven in, in the United Kingdom. We've got like seven or eight in Australia. We've got 25 or 30 in Canada. We've got, a, we've got a two in Australia, uh, Argentina. We've got a, a therapist in South Africa, therapist in Belgium, and in, in Latvia. We even have a therapist in Latvia just recently <laughs> joined us, which is, wow, that's wild. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. No, that sounds really important. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as somebody that's... Um, in the UK, we we basically get referred to mental health services through our what we call our GP, general practitioner. So that's our doctor essentially. Um, and yeah, you know, I've experienced sitting in the doctors there um, in an absolute state, crying my eyes out, and the the doctors basically saying, "Well, you know, so religion can be good." You know, it's um, yeah, and you think, "Well, where where do you go from there?" Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think. Um, and that again is why there's such a need for uh, for signposting that that gives you uh, the right sort of place to go to. So yeah, I think that's yeah. that's fantastic work. Really, um, it's interesting that your organisation is called Recovering uh, from Religion, and your book, uh, which is great by the way, people should buy this book. It's called oh, The good. God Virus. <laughs> I'm showing <laughs> it to you there. You know what it looks like. Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting that you've used a kind of medical type analogy on both uh, occasions. So, um, do you want to talk about uh, a bit? We can go into the God virus as well, really. Uh, sure. What? Why do you think that's such a useful metaphor? This idea of recovery from uh, religion and and the virus. Yeah, well, I start the book out with um, um, with a biological um, analogy. Uh, that I think really helps, and that I I noticed from a, an essay that uh, Richard Dawkins wrote back in nineteen I think he wrote it in nineteen eighty nine called Viruses of the Mind, and I had also read Dawkins' book The Selfish Gene, which he talks about memes mm -hmm. and memetics, and if the audience isn't familiar with that, um, it doesn't mean the the graphic that pops up on your Facebook page. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, I can, but it's that's not what its original meaning was. Mm. But um, it, it occurred to me that what Dawkins was saying is a meme is a unit of culture that wants to get from one brain to the next brain. And our brains are repositories for culture, which, you know, that's where culture resides. I mean, <laughs> where else where else will it reside? It doesn't reside in our kidneys. You know, it's going to reside in our brains, right? <laughs> And and a, a meme almost takes a life of its own. It wants it it, it it's like a virus in that the you know the COVID virus, which we've all heard a lot about in the last few years, wants to get from my respiratory system to your respiratory system. So viruses and bacteria and parasites all have ways of controlling us. I mean, I, I oftentimes at my talks, uh, Stephen, I'll I'll ask people, how many of you have been controlled by another organism uh, in your life? And n almost nobody raises their hand. And then I say, well, have you ever had a cold? And uh, and the cold took control of your sinuses and made you sneeze. You weren't doing that on purpose. You you couldn't stop sneeze. You couldn't stop the mucus from coming out. Hmm. You couldn't stop the coughing. Well, the reason for that is that facilitates the the viral particles getting from my nose to your nose. So you had another organism take control of you, much like a rabies. A rabies uh, virus will uh, work its way into the brain of the organism, the animal, the dog, the raccoon, the human, and take control of that, that animal and make that animal do crazy things. Like the dog goes out and tries to find other dogs to bite or or attacks a bear rather than running away from the bear you know there's the, the other organisms have the ability to strongly influence us if not take us over mm. well i noticed the religion behaves the same way <laughs> it can take people over i mean I, i'm sure many of your listeners have had the experience of 
someone who seems perfectly normal, they're not religious, you know, maybe they're a professional or well-educated person, and you have a relationship with them, and then one day they get in a car wreck, or their mother gets terminal cancer, you know, or or they get cancer, or, you know, something happens that's, that traumatizes them, and suddenly they get Jesus, and they become a whole different person, mm-hmm. and you can't talk to them without them referring to Jesus. Well, God is saving me. God is supporting me. God is helping making sure my mother, I pray every day my mother gets well. And she's gotten better this week, you know. Uh, it's, it's not because of the doctors. It's because of Jesus. <laughs> and, and you know, a yeah. month or two ago or a year ago, this person was a perfectly reasonable, rational, apparently person. And now their their brain has been infected with this virus. And I call it, in this case, a God virus. Now, the interesting thing is in uh, Western in Western cultures, people don't wake up from those traumatic experiences and get Allah. They don't get Buddha. They get amazing. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's always it's amazing. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, if you dig down beneath the surface, <clears throat> you'll find out that the religion they got was not always, but almost always, the religion that they were experiencing when they were about five, six, seven years old. Yeah. It could be exact same religion. Hmm. Now there are exceptions and I'm, I'm not saying that people don't get different religions, but they don't stray too far. Hmm. You know, very few people are raised Baptist, have an epiphany at 35 years old and become, you know, a Hindu. Yeah. <laughs> How often does that happen? <laughs> so religion is a virus that wants to get from my mind to your mind. And it wants to take over. Why does it want to take over? So just like the cold virus or the COVID virus wants to take over your brain so that you will do the behaviors that um, help it spread from my brain to your brain. And those behaviors are the very ones we were talking about when we first got started here. Hmm. Family stuff, you know, you, the behaviors are you have to pray, you have to pray the rosary, you have to have um, specific kinds of crosses. Or, I mean, you don't see a Catholic running around with an Orthodox cross on. And, uh, you know, Catholics like the crucifix. Well, nobody else seems to like the crucifix. Yeah. My grandmother always said those Catholics are, are not true Christians because they didn't take Jesus down off the cross. <laughs> Yeah, so um, this is something that I thought was really interesting in your book and resonated with me a heck of a lot, is that um, once you're infected by a particular type of God virus, it effectively inoculates you from other types of God viruses. So, and, and, you know, I think about my own family in this regard, very sensible people, um, very good at spotting bullshit, you know, um in any other situation and yet they just cannot see how ridiculous it is uh, and, and hear themselves when they're talking you know and it's right. it kind of is so frustrating to listen to but um absolutely relates to what you're saying well the parasite i could have called the my book the god parasite <laughs> instead of the god par- virus because all these things act their behavior is similar very similar so I, I don't know if you remember, but I used a Toxoplasmic Gandhi um, parasite as one of the illustrations in the book. And that is a parasite that, that infects the brain of a rat. And it only takes over a small part of the rat's brain. Religion didn't take over the whole brain. It just took over the part that's important to the propagation of the religion. Hmm. So as a result of the, of the Toxoplasmic Gandhi, uh, it, it infects the brain of the rat and makes the rat uh, attracted to cat pheromones. It's not attracted to dog pheromones or owl pheromones or any other predator. It's only attracted to cat pheromones. Why in the hell would a rat want to be attracted to a cat? And the, the science on this is, is rock solid. It, there've been, it's been replicated in many, many ways. What happens is the rat literally goes out and seeks the smell of a cat. Well, if you're seeking the smell of a cat, you're probably pretty close to a cat. <laughs> then the cat grabs you, eats you, and and the, the rat gets ingested into the cat, as do the Toxoplasmic Gandhi. 
eggs and they reproduce inside the gut of the cat. The cat uh, has feces himself and then the rat steps in the feces at some point in time, licks his paws, and then the whole cycle starts over again. It The, the toxoplasmic gondi has to infect the rat in just rat brain in just the right way, mm-hmm. or it won't be able to reproduce because it can't reproduce in the gut of an owl or in the gut of a dog or any other potential predator. It has to reproduce in a cat. So it's, it's just, that's the way it works. Uh, it's a, it's a fantastic, remarkable um, analogy. Um, we're, and by the way, this has got nothing to do with the analogy, but um, it was that sort of thing that, um, um, if you think about the wonders of creation and how a loving God creates all these wonderful animals to do these wonderful things, it was <laughs> it was things like that that I I thought, well, how does why did God do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the God of the Toxoplasmic Gandhi. There you exactly. go. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it is genius if you think about it as an evidence of intelligence. There is absolute absolute genius at play there, but definitely yeah. evil genius. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the universe wants to kill us, and it's <laughs> and if that's the case, then God wants to kill us, evidently. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by becoming a patron. You can support the podcast for just one pound or a dollar fifty, and receive a variety of Patreon benefits as a thank you. Don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe, and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in, or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. Absolutely, yeah. So, okay, so let's um, let's get back to the um, the, the God Virus books. It's, it's so interesting. So you talk about... Um, the mechanisms that religions tend to use to infect people's thinking. Uh, And you talk about sex, guilt, and morality. I think that those are three that are really important. Do you want to explain to us why they're so important to this? uh, this Well, we're biological creatures, of course. So we are, we are, we want to reproduce our bodies and our brains are designed to find a mate, have sex, reproduce. Uh, But our our particular brains, humans, as opposed to apes or dogs, our particular brains are are built to built in an evolutionary way. Yeah, <laughs> not not in a god designed way. Absolutely. To uh, to be able to engage in lots of what we call culture. So the, I mean, we have big brains, and there's some really good work on this over the years. But so, um, that we have big brains because we have big culture. Our culture is so much more complex than, say, a bonobo culture or a chimpanzee culture. And there's there's no place on the planet that humans are that doesn't have big culture. Now, it may not look big to us because it's different, but it's still very big. Mm, I mean, yeah. an, uh, an Aboriginal's culture in Australia um, a thousand years ago was as big as any other culture on the planet. It just had different components than what you would see if you were in the steppes of Central Asia or France or somewhere like that. So that we've got this propensity to have this big culture. Well, within culture, all of these memes that are wanting to get in our heads. And it's a, it's a competition. It's just like any other parasite. The competition is trying to get in our heads. Some memes, some of our cultural memes are parasitic. Others are beneficial. I mean, algebra is a meme. Algebra is beneficial. Hmm. Uh, religion is a meme. Religion takes 10% of your income and forces you to go to church at least once a week. So it's taking away from you. It's not giving you anything extra. And morality becomes a part of this because how we treat other human beings is a big part of a culture. Every culture has got its... its uh, taboos and its uh, practices and its mores about how you treat other human beings. And religion just simply says, well, hey, we can we can grab that. And people have people learn these rules about how you treat other human beings when you're three, four, five, six, seven years old. 
That's when you're really learning this stuff. Long before you have the critical ability to analyze, is this really a good idea or not? So at five years old, your parents say, uh, don't go uh, over there in those in that forest because there's lions that'll eat you. And the kid who listens to their parents is alive to reproduce later. Um, we're the descendants of the kids that listen to their parents, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. The same parent will say, don't go over there by that, that big tree or that bush because there are demons that live over there. And I'm, as, as a child, I have no way to know which one of those is right or if both of them are right or both of them are wrong. I don't know. I just know that if I listen to my parents, I'm going to survive. And that's the way we are genetically programmed. Yeah. Well, the problem is that now I'm, I'm infected with a religious idea. Demons live underneath those trees. Or 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 devils, <laughs> devils are are in uh, the Catholic Church, like my grandmother told me. So I I grew up with a with a morality that says you treat these people differently as the out group, and you treat our people a certain way as the in group, and that's just very normal behavior for humans. But religion simply takes advantage of it. I mean, that's what you, you do in the Jehovah's Witness group, the, the entire, or the Mormons, or the Mennonites, or the Amish, any of those kinds of high control cults, they define everybody outside as evil, as secular, as uh, Gentiles, world. Gentiles, or the English. I mean, that's what the... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's what the Amish call everyone, everyone that's not them. They're, they're the English. <laughs> Never understood that, but yeah. <laughs> I, we actually talked to a, an Amish, uh, um, an ex-Amish uh, young lady, um, and I, I actually asked her about that because I said, you know, obviously being English, I'm always fascinated um, by that. But I mean, it goes back, obviously, to the, the um, Germanic roots, I suppose. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. But yeah. so so that leads next to sex. And right. every every cell in our body is sexual. I mean, you're you are we're just sexual creatures. That's we sexually reproduce. There's no, no other way for us to do that. So religion comes along and says, sex, if I can, if, I mean, I'm, I'm fantasizing here, but religion basically says, if I can take over your sexuality, then I can take you. I it's can control, control you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't quote Richard Nixon very often, <laughs> uh, but I was, I am old enough to remember the, the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he did have a famous saying that he told Henry Kissinger one time. He said, if you've got them by their balls, their hearts and minds will follow. And that's true. You know, if you grab somebody's sexuality, you have amazing control over, over other people. And that's why religion spends so much time telling you what you can and can't do with your own body, whether you can or can't have an abortion, whether you should or shouldn't have birth control, whether you should have sex before marriage, whether you can masturbate or not, you know, all, all this stuff is, or whether you should be celibate or not, if you're a Catholic nun or a mm -hmm. priest, there's so many rules around sex and sexuality. There's also cultures and religions that have rules around food. I won't deny that. And sometimes they go together. I mean, for example, you can see a uh, Fasting in some cultures means no sex and no and no food or certain kinds of food. Yeah, so if if you have control of sexuality and you have control of food, <laughs> you really got some control there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but food's not as popular. You know, it, it doesn't seem to work as well. And religion tends to stick with what works, yeah. like like. Ev evolution does evolution sticks with what works hmm. so if, if a, 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 per a particular characteristic is not adaptive for this environment genetically speaking if it's not adaptive for this environment then i'm going to die or the character or the animal or reason that has that characteristic is probably going to die if if i have a characteristic that's adaptive for the environment at this time and place i'm going to i'm more likely to survive well religion's the same way yeah, and I I try to write about that in in the book that religion has a remarkably evolutionary uh, component to it. It mm. it evolves just like a virus evolves, 
and we're looking at the we're looking at the um, evolution of COVID. I mean, it's constantly changing. Sure. The cold virus, the rotaviruses, they're constantly changing. It's flu virus. So that's why you have to get a different shot every year because the viruses are evolving mm. to get around our immune systems. Well, religions evolve too. When I was growing up, a, a, a woman would not dream of wearing pants in church on Sunday morning. I mean, that, that would, they would be ostracized. The woman would be kicked out of the church practically. And that was in 19, I was born in 1950. So in 1960, no woman would be seen inside a church with pants on. By 1970, in my church, women were wearing pants in, in, on Sunday morning. So in a scope of only 10 years, that practice changed. Well, if our church had kicked every woman out that wore pants, the church would have died. <laughs> yeah. So the church has to adapt. The church has to evolve. And that's what it did. It evolved to allow women to do that in Catholic church. No woman would be seen inside the cathedral without a hat on. Well, now women don't even think about it. They don't own a hat. So they don't, they don't need one in church. So religion evolves. And, and it also evolves in, in terms of sex and sexuality. But it's always a day late and dollar short. Religion's always behind the culture. Yeah, and I guess the the more fundamental it is, that the slower it is for it to to change. So, you know, in Kingdom yeah. Halls, Jehovah's Witness women still wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be permissible for them to wear trousers. That would be a, an absolute no no. But yeah, you can imagine in um, I don't know fifty years time if if they're still going that um, that you you know you might see a relaxation of that sort of thing so eventually yeah. eventually they get there so you make this point in your book that um, religion likes to pretend that their morality is never changing and yet if you look at the <laughs> reality of it you can see that it does actually oh yeah always it's changing remarkably I mean think uh, about the morality of the of the 16th century it allowed for yeah. burning of witches and mm. uh, burning at the stake and torturing yeah. of people. No big deal. They do it for Jesus. Right. Well, mm. any church that tortured people today or, or, you know, let's have a, we're going to have a, a, a cross, uh, um, a witch burning, <laughs> witch in, burning. Uh, after, a, after the service today on yeah. Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully so the, we, we don't see that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but a quarter of a million, uh, mostly women, were burned, burned, or otherwise tortured during the um, uh, during the sixteen um, hundreds, so late fifteen hundreds into the sixteen hundreds, and it was a regular practice. Nobody yeah. thought anything of it. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So so that's um, that that's really interesting. So we've um, essentially you're saying that um, again using this analogy of of evolution um the way that that viruses evolve um and they also take over these important functions of the body that essentially religion does the same thing with things like sex and guilt mm -hmm. and morality um, right, and right. the the religions that do that most effectively survive those groups that don't end up dying out and you know there's lots of there's lots of groups that um shoot up and then disappear aren't there even in uh in our society yeah in upstate new york in the 1820s and 30s the mm. burned over district is where jehovah's witnesses got their start That's right they didn't yeah. weren't called that then of course mm. it was also where the seventh day adventists got their start it's also where the mormons got their start but of that during that time period something like 128 different religions got started but only three survived today that's right. If yeah. that's not evolution in action, I don't know what is. Survival <laughs> of the organisms that are most fit to survive yeah, within it, their it, environment. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Now you look at the struggles of those religions, and I, I'll include Catholics too, even though they started other place, uh, much earlier. Uh, you can see that those religions are struggling to adapt. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Mormons and gay marriage. They were funding secretly funding the proposition 8 opposition in california because uh, against gay marriage you know and and now thousands thousands of people are leaving the mormon church over uh, over lgbtq issues people are saying okay let me see here do i choose my kids or do i choose my church 
And some of them are smart enough to say, I'm going to choose my kids, and they're leaving the church. Mormonism is dying fast. Joe's Witnesses are dying fast. There's, there's a lot of, of shock going on because the culture is changing so fast, and religion simply can't keep up with it. They're trying. Uh, I, I would I mean, look, there were no female ministers in most churches. Even even twenty years ago, and now even the Baptists are thinking about allowing women to preach from the pulpit. Now that's radical. <laughs> uh, I, what's going to happen when the the Catholic Church cannot get priests? The, nobody wants to be, be a priest anymore. You know, you can't have sex anymore. <laughs> Why yeah. would you want to do that? <laughs> and, and so the Catholics are struggling in some places and they're having to tweak their rules to let women be the deaconesses and do some things that only priests used to be able to do. At this point in time, Ireland, I don't know if you know about Ireland, but Ireland cannot get priests. There are, last I checked, there were more priests that had been um, brought in from Africa to be um, parish priests inside of Ireland. So you've got Nigerian Catholic priests in Ireland now, isn't that a turn of Because <laughs> nobody yeah. in Ireland wants to be a priest. <laughs> it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, you talk a little bit about the future of um, of the, the virus and um, and religion. So maybe that's a, a good segue into that. Um, you know, I mean, I would love to see the end of, of these uh, fantasy-ridden belief systems that just cause so much pain and suffering to people. But... Um, it, it's also a, so stepping outside of the, the virus analogy for a moment, it, it is also a way for people to make sense of their lives. Um, and um, I, I, yeah, what, what do you, is there, is there the possibility that one day we will grow beyond the need for these um, infantile beliefs? Well, that's a, that's a tricky question. It's a tough question. Of course, I'm not a prognosticator. I don't have my crystal <laughs> ball here, but I, but I will say this. You may remember in the book, I, I had a whole chapter on the civil religion. Yes. Now, unfortunately, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm American. I'm writing from a North American perspective. Sure. Oftentimes I tried not to be too myopic in it. But, but the fact is, the principles I talk about apply to any culture. And I do talk about Saudi Arabia. I do talk about Bangladesh and places like that. But ultimately, we are seeing right now a religion that's a, a new religion. It's the religion of right-wing fascism. And that religion is driving Russia, is, is a component of Putin's, Putin's machine to invade Ukraine. I mean, it's right-wing religious fascism that fueled Hitler. I mean, he was very Christian, <laughs> very Christian, and he was very good buddies with the Pope. The Pope, yeah. Pope Pius the Fourth, I believe it was, was was a friend of of Hitler's and actually participated in some of the horrible things, you know. So we're seeing Bolsonaro. Can't pronounce his name right. In um, in Brazil, just an election, and we see Donald Trump. I mean, what what more, what bigger antithesis of Christianity can you find than Donald Trump? Yeah. He's he's the opposite of anything I ever heard about in a Christian church, and yet the yeah. Christians love him. Yeah. So it tells us, as I wrote in that in that chapter. That chapter is probably more important in the book than almost anything else of the book, because it shows us where we're going mm. in the future, I think. And that is, it, it's a religion, uh, it's a political, all religions are political. Let's let's not fool ourselves. There's no such thing as a non-political religion. But in this case, this this right-wing fascism has, is becoming religious in its zeal, and its date. It's dangerous because it can cause wars. It can cause invasions. It can cause gays to be persecuted, tortured, killed. Uh, you got Bolsonaro in Brazil preaching daily against the gays, so to speak. Well, there's probably millions of people who are, are either gay or have a good relation, close relationship with somebody who's LGBTQ. Yeah. 
And you see Donald Trump ranting and raving against trans people or homosexual people or, you know, whatever the right wing's doing. But it's a it's become religious. And that's where we're going. I mean, the mm. future is right in our faces right now. It's not whether we're going to have Catholicism in, in 100 years. Um, yeah, Catholicism will be around. We're not going to get rid of that. But Mormonism is dying. But Mormonism is very, very wealthy. There's tons of money. It's not going anywhere. It may have a third the members, but the money's still in the bank. <laughs> and it's drawing yeah. interest. But this, this right-wing fascist religion is putting a patina, uh, an icing on the cake, so to speak. And it's putting an umbrella over a wide range of religions. Because you can be a right-wing fascist Catholic or a Baptist, a Muslim, you can be an Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and still fall underneath this umbrella. That's the uniqueness of this, this mm -hmm. global movement. It's it's really um, yeah. it's scary. It, it, scary. It, feel, it feels as well that, um, I mean, this might be another mutation of the God virus, um, Daryl, that um, yeah. using people's uh, that the in, I don't think it's any co um, coincidence that inequality, the the greater inequality is in in uh, these lands like you know the UK and and uh, the states and so on. The greater that level of inequality amongst people, the more that people feel this sense of um, grievance, uh, and that seems to be a really powerful means by which these ideas can start to grow. You know, so it's almost like. Right. It's piggybacking on this sense of grievance and inequality. It does, um, yeah. You know, we in the UK we had this um, we're fed up with experts type um, attitude. You know, and and um, I mean we're nowhere near. I don't think the level of what's happening in the states at the moment, but um, still there there are the same sorts of conditions. I think that um, yeah, it is it is concerning. And um, I was going to ask you about the QAnon phenomenon and uh, and whether you see that well, as a religion. You know, ab absolutely, it's a religion. Religion. Yeah. It's it's got its own rituals. It's got its own founding people, yeah. and and it looks back. It looks backwards. Many many of what, what you see in in religion. Uh, whenever you see uh, uh, a religion, say I'm. We are the Reformed Church. We are the Reformed Church of Calvinism or whatever. What you're really seeing is we want to go back about four hundred years. <laughs> well, when you look at what QAnon wants, or what you know, what Putin wants, they they want to go backwards. They want yeah. to go backwards. I mean, Putin wants the good old Soviet Union, basically. Yeah. And you see this in any religion; it's usually backwards looking. Mm. I mean, there's no religion on the planet that I've ever heard of that's forwards looking and wants to invent new technology. It wants to understand the germ theory of science. They don't. You know, what's chemistry? What, how does chemistry work in, you know, running the heart of, the, um, you know, they just don't. There's no religion that does that. It's always looking backwards and always saying, let's return to the intention of our fathers. And we look at this in the United States now. We say all these people who say we want to go back and and uh, abide by the the vision of the founding fathers of the United States. And that's what, you know, five five or six of the Supreme Court justices now are super religious. And they, it's like a religion. It's, it's the founding father's religion. Now the founding fathers owned slaves. So I'm pretty damn sure we don't, we're, we're not wanting to go back to that, but that's, that wouldn't, you would have, they would have you believe that we should go mm -hmm. back and abide by whatever our founding fathers thought. Founding fathers, and we're against centralized economics, having a national bank. Nope, don't, don't. And yet, how could we function in a modern society without without these things? Anyway, there's just a, a lot. It's a it's a whole big um, subject for another for another day, I guess. Um, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're we're coming close to. Um, we, we, as I said before we started, uh, Daryl, we we tend to only. Um, trouble our guests for about an hour because we think that's about as much as uh, most most of our guests really want to um give her their time um i guess the the one thing that um, we i'd love to talk to you another time about but i'll just to flag it up now 
is um so i've um because of my being raised as a jehovah's witness obviously education further education was out so it's taken me a long time mm -hmm. to get there but i've uh last couple of years i finally finished my master's in organizational psychology Excellent. and i know i know that's your that's your bag or was your yep. bag so um one of the questions that i'd love to um ask you and maybe we leave it hanging there for another time but um is um something that i've thought for quite some time is that the study of cults in particular high control groups and and even religion in in more general terms um especially when we talk about um life afterwards and making sense of our lives tends to be dominated by um therapists and um psychologists who help people individually to try and make sense of their lives and get better basically but it seems to me that there's a whole science around organizational psychology and the way that organizations work and the mechanisms within those organizations that could be applied to cults um and have only to a very limited degree and it feels like there's a massive field there to, to really understand cults well, uh, you may not be aware of it, but I wrote two other books on that very subject. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, my, my first two books were on, uh, first book was published by McGraw-Hill uh, called Teaming Up. And the second one was called The Performance Culture. Right. And my the thesis um, in both books, to different degrees, is uh, that the organizational culture really influences the individual's behavior. And it dramatically influences it for the good or for the bad. And I've got I've got a whole structure by which you I'm sure you would love some of the concepts, especially my book the the performance culture. I think okay. it's of the two books, it's my favorite. I think I did the best job. It was my second book, so I knew what I was doing. Okay, <laughs> first well, one I wasn't sure. <laughs> that's on my Christmas list. Then that's definitely um, okay. Well, you have to order from me because it's out of print. I've got copies. Ah. I can. I can send it to you, but yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I'd love yeah. to read that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's um, um, maybe if you, if you feel like it, if you would like to, it would be great to have you back to talk about some of those. You, those you let me know. I'll be back. And I, it's a subject I love talking about. So okay. there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. So yeah. I'd okay. Love well, that. that's it. That's definitely on the cards. Um, okay. So uh, Dr. Darrell Ray, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Stephen.